Hey friends, just quickly, my new book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. Get it from plantproof.com forward slash book. Thanks so much for all your ongoing support, and I hope you enjoy this episode. I saw a guy speak on a panel called Can Human Beings Sustain Themselves on Planet Earth? And all the experts on the panel said, no, it's too late, we're effed. And the last guy said, yeah, what they're saying is true. They're not exaggerating the bad news, but there's a blind spot in the equation. And we only think as humans separate from nature. What if we could think as part of this living system called nature, the way we manage land and do agriculture could actually be the thing that draw enough carbon down from the atmosphere, making a problem in the atmosphere, being a solution in the soil, and that moment was like, wow. The earth went from being a flat earth to a round earth. Flat earth is like we just destroy, destroy, destroy. And then round earth was like, oh, we can actually go back to the beginning. That imbalance that we created, we could actually cycle that imbalance imbalance and reverse it. That's Ryland Englehart and Finian Makepeace. And this this is episode 105 of the Plant Proof Podcast. Hey friends, welcome back to another episode of the Plant Proof Podcast. It's great to be back here with you again and I hope you're doing well. For those who are new listeners to the show, my name is Simon Hill. I'm your host and by way of background, I have a bachelor's degree in physiotherapy, a master's degree in nutrition and really a passion for separating fact from fiction when it comes to how our food choices affect not only our health, but also the planets. I started this show to create a safe space, a non-judgmental space to talk about diet, with the aim being to separate any ideology from science and, and then with that information, you can make decisions in your own life that suit the lifestyle you want to lead. A sort of here's the information approach rather than here's what you must do, so to speak. As always, I will catch you in the outro for a few parting notes. Time to hear from Ryland Englehart and Finian Makepeace of Kiss the Ground, a recording that took place in Venice Beach early March this year. Ryland, Finian, welcome to the Plant Proof Podcast. Thank Thanks you so much. Thanks for having us. Do we want... The, the sirens are okay. Well, let's roll with the sirens. Let's roll with the sirens. Venice. Venice. <laughs> 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 Good to be here. Uh, yeah, thank you for the invitation. Um, I didn't think this is where I would be at 7.30 in the morning <laughs> on this Friday morning. Um, Talking about soil. That's right. <laughs> but, but super, as I said just a moment ago, I'm more lit up about yeah. what we're doing and the conversation that we're bringing and the uh, education that we're bringing. Discovered seven years ago and uh, I'm more lit up now than ever. So mm. grateful to share another time with uh, another audience. Well, yeah, it's a, it's a real pleasure to have both of you here today to talk about soil health, regeneration, and why it's important. And it's nice to be able to sit down with with two guys who we were just saying then have been in this space for a long time now. So definitely thought leaders and can shed a lot of light on what this space offers and, and why it is the future for, mm. for agriculture and why it's so important top line uh cafe gratitude i've been living there (laughs) (laughs) thank you yeah i gotta get out of there (laughs) (laughs) 
Are you humble, whole, uh, brilliant, sharing? What's your what's 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 your affirmation while you're there? I'm, yeah, I'm I'm definitely humble a lot. What's the the sesame the sesame smoothie that like ah uh, uh, yeah eternal, eternal the I'm, black sesame matcha I'm eternal that, that was my recipe damn <laughs> <laughs> good yeah 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 um, I'm glad you like it some yeah. people don't it's it's not as popular as I thought it was going to be but yeah I love I love the black sesame matcha kind of Japanese ice cream kind of smoothie thing no it definitely hits the spot and I like the 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 question of the the day is always nice and yeah it's a cool vibe down there. Yeah, it's actually funny. You, you're from Australia, yeah. and out of all the years that we've been serving, you know, the state of California through Los Angeles and San Francisco, which is where we started, Australians, out of all the international communities, I feel like I serve more Australians there at Cafe Gratitude than maybe any other international community. That's just just like, I mean, it's anecdotal evidence, but it has been the, my experience that Australians have been coming and been loving Cafe Gratitude for years. My experience of Australians, I haven't been to Australia yet, so, but I feel like somehow, maybe it's just the people who are not in Australia at the, at the time, but like always up for the new stuff. You know what I mean? Where it's like yeah. some other cultures, it's kind of like, yeah, they're in their ways, but the Australian mm. being up to the new. And very thing. adventurous. Yeah. You know, wanting to like, seek all right, out that's you know, let's find the cutting edge, a new yeah. country or a new restaurant or whatnot. But yeah, I must say, like a lot of my friends who come to LA, they they all talk about gratitude, and you know, we swap stories about what they order. And it's cool, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, would you say on your podcast, the audience on your podcast, what percent has been to LA and been to Cafe Gratitude? Do you think? I'd say oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I know. I poll out. Poll out. <laughs> <pull> out. Live <laughs> poll happening. <laughs> Um, I don't know. All I can say is if you haven't, you have to. And um, yeah, you definitely won't be disappointed. It's um, it's a really cool place. And Gracias Madre is awesome as well. You know, that I think if I went there the first time. When did you open that? Uh, we opened that 2009 in San okay. Francisco and then 2015 in LA. Yeah, I like it. It's got a cool vibe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right, let's, so, let's do, 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 are we, do we want to go into the background of that or are we going to just, yeah, yeah. We'll, we'll, we'll come back to that. Okay, great. I want, to, I want to explore that definitely, but let's set the stage just at the, at the, from the outset. Yep. Maybe let's just define regenerative agriculture mm. to, to set that stage. So what, what is regenerative agriculture? How is it different to conventional and why from a top, top level, why do you see it as something that we should be moving towards? Finn, you want to take this? Sure. Um, I'm I'm actually doing a talk at Expo West, the, the Natural Food Expo on Friday. That's the, that's the topic is what is regenerative? Because everyone's kind of hearing about this buzzword. And a lot of people are slightly confused. Some are very confused and some are, are a little closer to the, the concept. Uh, and we do work to to make it easier for people to understand it. One of the easiest ways that I think is out there to understand regenerative agriculture is to look at the words. So what we do a lot in in presentations and when I teach soils advocates, who I, I train people to be advocates for this subject, is saying, okay, let's start by the word degenerative. What does it mean? Something's degrading, depleting. Its, its ability to function is lessening over time, right? We can all kind of agree on that definition. And we say, okay, what does sustainable mean? Like, well, sustainable means something's able to be maintained or, you know, not 
totally taken out, you know, and the definition in the dictionary is able to be used without being completely used up or destroyed. So kind of like, you know, the, the minimal amount of work so that something's not completely destroyed, right? And then we say, well, what does regenerative mean? And most folks pretty easily come up with the explanation of what regenerative means. Something is being restored, replenished, uh, brought back to its highest functioning state. You know, we imagine a lizard who gets its tail chopped off. It regenerates so that it has a tail again, so that it can function as a fully functioning lizard. Obviously not quite as good as it was when it was its original tail. But the point is, when we can grasp regeneration, right, and then we can take it into a model of like, oh yeah, when you till a field and it's all tilled up and bare ground, and then you let it rest for four years, all of these plants come back and they help to make it fertile again, right? That's how farmers have been doing for eons is leaving land fallow so that it regenerates, right? So that nature regenerates it. So what we're getting at in this really quick example is we've very quickly defined that regeneration is not sustainability. They are very different concepts altogether. And there are different ways of thinking. But that was very much, the sustainable model was very much sort of a way of thinking. And and now this is replacing that, right? Well, yeah. And and arguably, a lot of the folks who were the pioneers of the sustainability movement were ushering in concepts and the, the base ideas of what is now regenerative. But unfortunately, the word and the ideas in the overall society, I would say, of the whole world still mean what sustainable means, even if the people sure. who are leading yeah. it really meant regenerative or really were practicing regenerative. The concept as a whole, it has its taken by society is still in that context of the word sustainable. And some yeah. examples could be the original intention for organic agriculture would have held a lot of practices and principles that were designed to regenerate soil and heal an ecosystem. But as organic became more of a desired marketing tool, big brands and companies started to do organic agriculture, but to allow them to do it at large scale and, you know, kind of an irresponsible scale, they, you know, shifted the policy or the the the, the written word of what organic was so that you could just it was a list of what you couldn't put into the system. That's interesting. Versus what you were supposed to put into the system such that you created this proliferation of growth or healing or, you know, continuous soil fertility. Mm-hmm. So you could say that the current state of organic is really a sustainable, meaning it, it still is slowly degrading. It's degrading a system much slower, but for the most part, it's not regenerating the soil that depends, that that ecosystem depends on. That's interesting. I don't yeah. think most most consumers would be aware of that. I think if you're going down and, and buying some organic fruit and veg, you're thinking, okay, this is coming from a farm that is, very, is putting back into the soil. And very likely it could be. But that's what Ryland's getting at is at this state in the game, if you're going and buying you know, from the supermarket without any knowledge of that food chain, and you're saying, okay, I'm buying this bag of carrots. In California, carrot production at a large scale, conventional organic carrot production, is so destructive. If you see the videos of that farming, 
the rate that they're turning land to so broken and desertified that it's no longer usable as farmland. It's crazy. So you're like, oh, wow, I'm buying organic carrots. Well, those are still causing major devastation, you know, upwards of 10 tons of topsoil loss per acre per year, uh, turning the land to desert, you know, turning it uh, saline, uh, salty or whatever. So we look at that and we're then looking at something else where it's regenerative and it could be a completely different product and it's actually regenerating the land. I want to jump back really quick just to, to paint this for people as clearly as possible. So when we look at our farming, the question needs to become not what, but how. And that's where each of us as advocates or as consumers or as business leaders or thought leaders can start to steer the conversation towards how is this farming really happening? And the cool thing about asking how is you start to look into the factors that are going into that farming system. And ultimately, what we're talking about with regeneration is the outcome. So when you're talking about, is something sustainable? Well, the outcome of that would be maintaining what was there, right? But regenerative, the outcome has to be, it got better, right? So you really start to get that it can be these two words, regenerative and agriculture. You put those together. And that's what we're talking about. It's not, it's no longer like a made up new word that we have to figure out the definition for. Literally look up what farming or or agriculture means, then look up what regenerative means, put them together. It's farming that is causing the land to regenerate, which is very different than almost every culture around the world, with few exceptions. Most cultures to produce their food and fiber for the past 10,000 years, have been experiencing that the land degrades as they produce their food. And then they let it rest and it recovers. But as populations increase, that rest and recovery time and the space for that to happen goes down. And so we keep using and abusing and all of a sudden, Just you know, de- the Middle East it used it. to be a fertile crescent and it was called the fertile crescent and now it's a desert. So okay. all across the world, we've lost about a third of our farmable land in the past 40 years to over farming or or improper farming or degenerative farming. Yeah. And, and we'll, we'll come back to that, I guess, in a bit as to whether that's recoverable and re- you can regenerate that or not. Yeah. But where does biodynamics sit within Great these questions? Good. Yeah. So biodynamic is a farming sort of distinction created by Rudolf Steiner, also the father of Waldorf education, which shout out, I'm a Waldorf kid, mm-hmm. uh, blessed, grateful, uh, privileged to have that experience as my childhood. And yeah, basically it was a, a model of holistic thinking on a farm and really seeing that if we wanted a farm to mimic nature, we had to see everything connected on the farm, just like in nature, everything's connected. And so that has to do with the variety of bugs that are on the farm. That has to do with the variety of birds on the farm. That has to do with a variety of, you know, the grass eating animals on the farm. That has to do with the variety of uh, flowering species such that there's pollinators. So it really sees that a whole farm is a living system. And that goes back to really, you know, a bigger kind of esoteric idea like 
the Gaia effect or like that mm-hmm. the, the earth is alive. It's a living being or you know, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's alive. The, the soil is alive and the overall earth is alive. And if you compartmentalize off a little, you know, piece of land that is a farm, how do you uh, nurture this piece of land to be the most alive so that in that aliveness, that, that fuel, that fertility that's being generated there on that farm is really um, being um, absorbed and turning into that which is being harvested and coming off that piece of land such that then the human beings that are getting to consume that nourishment are also getting that vibrancy, that aliveness, which ultimately has them be alive, awake, alert, and then, you know, making sure that the waste streams that are coming from that system are going back into that system so that there really is a circular thinking, a regenerative thinking of understanding that, you know, there's not just an end. Everything in nature, uh, every source product, <laughs> every product that it has an end has a beginning in nature. And but, yeah. And it's, it's not just a beginning. This is, I think, and yeah, the... One thing I want to add with biodynamic is a lot of people say it's the OG of regenerative and it's the longest standing standard that actually could be for consumers, the most reliable place to go to. If you get Demeter certified biodynamic, that's your most reliable source of regenerative. And that is also organic. That's right. It's also organic. So don't worry. You don't have to worry about it. It's like organic, but it's coming from a practice that is potentially oriented around and has held the integrity of regenerative much more than organic has been able to. Okay. So if you're wanting to support regenerative and you're looking for a label, biodynamic by far is the best choice right now. Cool. It's good. What's coming is going to be even more amazing and, and able to. Just, you know, have outcome verification of regeneration. But currently, that's your best bet. Certifications are still being worked on for regenerative uh, period. What I wanted to get with what Ryland's saying, and this might help people understand regenerative a bit more. A lot of times we're looking at the system of plants take, right? So when we're looking at the system of like, okay, I grew my plants. I took a bunch of them off the field. Now my system has this much less iron, magnesium, phosphate, all this stuff. So now I have to replace it, right? And you're like, huh, does that really make sense with how the world works? And this is why I didn't know this stuff. And this is why it's so tickling to my soul, because you realize that nature is fundamentally regenerative. The system is set up to be regenerative. So that means abundance is increasing. Even when you're taking off from the land and moving away, your source can still be regenerative. So what I mean by that is because in a system, your plants are pumping in sugars to feed organisms in the soil who make nutrients available for plants, you're not having an equation of just this much input, this much output, this much input, this much output. You're dealing with a situation where the amount of fertility, the amount of minerals uh, that your plants need is directly correlated with how much biology you've helped create there, that then the biology is what's releasing those minerals to make them available for your plant. So let's just pretend you have just straight rock, right? If your fungi and bacteria are able to decompose that rock such that the minerals in that rock become plants available, you've created more fertility, 
So instead of thinking, well, this is our measurement of how much phosphorus and how much magnesium we have on our land. Our tomatoes that we shipped off have this much, so therefore we have this much less. They're like, wait, if we get the biology activated, you can have an abundant source of that mineral substrate if you're activating your biology. So this is, again, the regenerative thinking. Instead of saying, let's measure our waste. So we trim all these things. We have all this bunch of waste. Let's measure our waste as now our additional uh, nutrients we can use. Like, no, it's actually more than just the additional nutrients because each of those populations of bacteria, like probiotics in your gut, can multiply and become a helper for the system to have even more nutrients available. So because populations of organisms increase, they're accessing and making available more nutrients from the minerals that were uh, not available to begin with in an inert substance. So that's the magic is saying we're looking and shifting people's brains from chemical, what's chemically available here, to what's mm. biologically being made available. So is that one of the reasons or the importance of having cover crops and always having something sitting on top that's like <laughs> creating that fertility? Feeding the soil, exactly, exactly. One of the ways that we say it is the big difference between conventional and regenerative or conventional degenerative and conventional or and, and regenerative is treating the soil as an inert substance and treating the soil as a living system that needs to be fed via plants all the time as much as possible. So we talked about those plants feeding their, their liquid sugars. If you're looking at a living system, as Rylan was saying with biodynamic, they're treating the system as living. Well, where's the system getting most of its, its food and fuel? It's from plants pumping in liquid carbon sugars into the system. Which starts so with some. Stun. That's right. With the sun using that's the sun's yeah. energy harnessing the carbon from carbon. It's pretty dioxide, incredible when you start to which is a problem to, to, to piece yeah. it all together. Oh my god! It's and, and most, an, yeah. another just thing to I think to highlight is if you think about you know the skin of the earth mm. and all the the soil beneath our feet, the majority of that soil is small particles of rock, sand, silt, and clay, which are just different particle size of mm. rock. That's geology. So when you have the organisms and the biology, the microorganisms that then are introduced or are in that, in that geology, they start to break that geology down and actually make those minerals available for the plants. So there's no shortage of minerals, right? Because <laughs> yeah. the whole planet is rock, sand, silt, and clay. So those are those are all mineral compounds that just the opportunity is we get the the biology right. The mm-hmm. pro in, in human thinking for our own microbiome, that's like the the good the good microbiome. We get that biology right, then we're gonna continuously be able to, you know, take the minerals out of that geology and make it plant available food, which then creates, you know, a healthy ecosystem that we can be continuously uh, harvesting food from. Instead of with our conventional model right now, every year you're depleting the life in the soil by over tilling, over use of synthetic fertilizers, pesticides, et cetera, you are increasing the amount of inputs you have to put in. So that's the big stranglehold. That's why farmers are committing suicide so often all around the world is because their input costs are going up and up and up because their soil fertility is depleting. So that commercial viability. With this mechanistic way that we're farming. Yeah. So they're being like, well, I, I'm, I'm putting more money in just to get my crop harvested. So they did an analysis that just came out on Forbes, I believe, last week. Forbes just published 
and analysis. While some regenerative farms are decreasing maybe 20% in the initial few years of, of their yield. yield, Yeah, their input costs are making them 75% more, input cost reductions are making them 75% more mm. than your conventional farmers. They were proving that regenerative farming is more profitable for farmers. And so that's the kind of thing we realized where we are in this for the farmer's bottom line. We're not just in this for like, yay, this is our carbon sequestration solution. Farmers, you better get on board. We're saying- we're right with the farmers. We understand their struggle, and we understand that they're they're in a, a a nonstop line for completely having to get out of the system because they have to put so much money into their fertility mixes and their all of their uh, inputs to make it work right now. But if you switch to regenerating it, all of a sudden, as Ryland's saying, every year you're able to decrease your inputs. And I mean, you mentioned then that their yield can drop off a little bit, right? But presumably that's going to then start to pick up because yeah. otherwise you'd have could have an issue with food supply if if a lot of people were moving to that right well, also a, a lot of the farmers who are in this who are getting into regenerative not only are they able to pick up other markets but they're also able to stack enterprises so when you start to move out of the yield and you know every possible square inch of your farm is in your corn and soy rotation production you start to dis- diversify and be like, oh, well, we're actually bringing on cows. Now we're following with chickens. Now we have a, an egg enterprise. We have a chicken enterprise and we have this enterprise and we're able to sell the local markets. And all of a sudden, that's another factor versus this feeding the world thing, which is corn and soy, first of all, doesn't even go to human consumption in the United States. The monocrops. Which all those monocrops yeah. are either going to, to feed for animals, for livestock or ethanol production and a few other things. But uh, and and basically all the sugary, sweet drinks that kill us, all that corn stuff. But in terms of food, we're not eating that corn or soy. Humans, you know, we eat soy from China and, and Japan, but we don't eat soy from the United States. I think that was a beautiful leading summary of what regenerative agriculture is. <laughs> One other thing I might add on that, and then and I'd like to explore both of your stories and, and sort of how you've wound up here, is... It seems like regenerative agriculture is sort of pulling on a bit of wisdom from multiple practices. Like mm. you mentioned the the biodynamic side of things. Um, I hear people talking about like permaculture. Is mm-hmm. it is it is it feeding off a number of Yeah, I think practices? I think we go even way, way back before that. I think we go back to indigenous wisdom, yeah. you know, the way that the, the Hawaiians were managing a watershed and making sure that, you know, year after year making sure upstream and downstream, you know, things were getting better and, you know, making sure that a system of interacting with nature wasn't destroying the thing that we depended on for life. Um, I think, you know, many or the way that in California, you know, indigenous communities uh, were tending the wild, understanding the way to interact with nature with certain management practices, whether it was um, seeing certain areas getting kind of too brushy to where there wasn't grass for grass eating animals to come through. And they would, you know, have actually burn that out because they, they know it wouldn't burn the, the, the crowns of the trees. They would just keep the, the lower regions clear such that there was grassland in the lower regions and kind of higher oak trees in the, in, that would ne- wouldn't get burned down. So you basically cr- created this optimum ecosystem for grasses and trees um, and grazing animals and also, you know, other kinds of 
plants that were, you know, edibles and medicinals within that system were, were, were kept and they would continuously create a fertility cycle of tending that land in that way. So I think, yeah. you know, when we think about regenerative agriculture, yeah, it's, it's a really, it's, it's coming from a very, very ancient wisdom of, of earth-based cultures, you know, cultures that were their life and understanding was observing nature. They were connected. They were connected, deeply connected. Yeah. In a, in a more modern sense, yes, you know, the kind of permaculture world, biodynamics, uh, you know, there was definitely, um, there's been some pioneering science that have understood, you know, the potential of how carbon sequestration, you know, how could we work with plants and, you know, okay, plants make, they take carbon dioxide, they make oxygen for us to breathe, but they're sending 40% of that uh, carbon into their root systems and exuding that carbon out and feeding the microbiology that we were speaking about earlier. And as that, those micro, you know, microorganisms are eating that carbon, that carbon becomes their bodies. And then what they, what they create waste of becomes like a stable uh, humus or stable carbon in the soil, in the subsoil. And so, you know, seeing the idea that could we work with nature? Could we, could we manage land in a way that always was drawing carbon and sequestering carbon in the soil and then understanding that it wouldn't make sense to then till up or, you know, um, expose that soil because ultimately that would be then releasing uh, that carbon that was actually stored in the ground. Maybe define tilling just in case there's, there's any listeners who are not familiar with that farming term. Yeah, so tilling, I mean, putting a large, heavy rake behind a tractor <laughs> and having it lift up the soil. And what it's done in the past and why it's been such a continuous practice for arguably, you know, 7,000 years is because it aerates the soil. So if you've depleted your soil at all, uh, when you break it up and you aerate it, you do have an influx uh, of a, for a short time of bacteria that are going to colonize and actually make your system, quote unquote, more fertile for a little while. But the problem is that population explosion of bacteria, they then have to turn and eat something. And if you don't have plants covering that soil instantly and you leave it bare at all, they're going to start eating the carbon that was stored in. As Ryland just described, the carbon being stored in those aggregates, that carbon is going to say, we need our carbon source. We have this big oxygen flux and nitrogen. We're going crazy. Now we're going to need our carbon. So they eat themselves out of house and home rather quickly. So all of a sudden you have a really high net loss of carbon in your soil when you're tilling. So, so is that carbon, this might be a silly question, but as they're doing that, is that carbon being released into the atmosphere? So any consumption... You know, when you're yeah. eating whatever you're having for breakfast, you're burning that off. That's yeah. creating CO2. Yeah. That's every living that organism out. that's that's oxygen mm. breathing is creating CO2 while they're functioning. Now, a living, can I use, oh, those plants are, I can't use them, but I can use this, right? <laughs> Pretending there's soil in here, right? Yeah. So let's, this will be our soil layer, right? So when we're dealing with a plant pumping in sugars into the ground, those organisms are eating it. Them eating it means carbon dioxide is going up, right? Mm -hmm. Also, though, as Ryland talked about, some of those glues that they create aggregate the soil together, and that becomes humus or more hard-to-digest gotcha. carbon, which stays in there. It can be in there for 30 to 500 years as 
the stored carbon. So we have a net carbon gain when we have plants pumping the sugar in. Now, the problem is when we have no plants over here, we have the organisms saying, where's my food? And they're also producing CO2 when they're eating. So we have a net carbon loss. Now, the cool thing about this system is you can actually have a higher CO2, which you always do in healthy soil. You have more CO2 going up because you have more biology in their soil, right? But the cool thing is this plant has per square millimeter, 300 open mouths here during photosynthesis where it's sipping in that CO2. So the highest concentration of CO2 in our air is on the healthy soil layer. But plants are designed to grab it again, pump it down, build themselves, increase mm. their photosynthesis, pump it down into the ground, feed the microorganisms. The microorganisms help it's them. Beautiful system. The plant grow. The plant gets bigger. More spread of leaves means more photosynthesis is able to happen. So you have a net carbon gain over here. The system was designed to be regenerative, not to be losing soil. Over here with bare ground, you have no carbon being able to replenish fast enough. So you're only exiting CO2, exiting CO2, exiting CO2. Which is why the desertification. Tilling, leaving the ground bare, chemicals, which kill the organisms that store the soil, store the carbon, pardon me. If you're doing those three things on a major level or overgrazing, you're putting Mm. net, you're in a net carbon loss. So I guess my next question is how we actually in the past hundred or however many years wound up here. And we were just talking then about some of these traditional like indigenous practices. It seems like the wisdom and the, the, the knowledge was there. Is it through a lack of connection with our land? Is it, is it through looking at things through more of a short-term commercial lens rather than a longer-term lens? What, why do you think we found ourselves in this current situation where we're so reliant on synthetics, we're so reliant on feedlots and, mm. and ultimately, you know, seeing the, the land degrade? Yeah, I think that's a big, a big, a big, great question. Uh, the thing that I wanted to say, just to, to, to caveat and just end the last thing was there's a, a, a beautiful author and kind of a, a, gra- a grandfather of the ideas of regenerative agriculture and natural farming and such uh, by the name of Wendell Berry, who said, more men will die from the plow than the sword. And what he meant was when we till the land, we destroy the land that all life relies on, and then we will destroy the civilization. And I'm going to add one thing on that from Roger. And what year did he say that? I don't know, but he's brilliant. You should just read all of his stuff. Roger Saver, who's Alan Savory's son, has another one that's on tails onto that perfectly, which is, you know, 20 or more major civilizations have collapsed due to the, the degeneration of our soil. How arrogant would we be to assume that our civilization won't collapse for the exact same reason? It gives me goosebumps every time because it's just like the hubris and the arrogance we're going in right now to our system being like, look, 20 or more major civilizations have fallen because of how they have destroyed their soil systems. Why are we so crazy to think we're not about to go into the same one globally this time, not just regionally anymore, globally? I don't know if people saw the film. uh, Why am I now forgetting there's... Give me a reminder of the... It's the opening sequence is basically the air, the soil is blowing in the air. Um, oh, it's it's with... Uh, it's about Matthew McConaughey, Matt. stay at home. Uh, uh, the one where he goes out into space and 
decides to stay in space or something, whatever that movie is. <laughs> anyway, anyway, sorry, listeners, for that bad, incomplete reference. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do my best to put it in the outro. Yeah, uh, but yeah. So the question is, yeah, how, how did we get here? Is it from a lack of connection? The fir- the first Simple thing. answer: Yes. Y- yes, exactly. Ex- you know, I, I think as you know, I'm just going to go to religion as religion came in and had a God be something that wasn't integral to this plane, this Mm -hmm. life, to the waters, the trees, the rivers, and it became something away from here. Mm -hmm. And that we've been given this place to have dominion and the good life is later. So do what we will here now and the good life is waiting for us in the clouds, that changes a lot because that just... What changes, yeah, the decisions you make. Yeah, I mean, just the, 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 whole, the whole attitude towards life. Taking care of. Taking care of. Mothering, respect of women who have much more innate connection to that. Let's make sure everything's going to be okay for everybody. That ten, Those tendencies fly out the window. Sorry, interrupt. Yeah. Yeah. But, you know, God is a man in the sky and, you know, we've been given dominion over this place versus we are interbeing, that we are interconnected with life itself and how the way we take care of the land is the way we're taking care of ourselves and that that we're one and the same and that we're part of a beautifully interconnected life that we have reverence for. Mm -hmm. You know, we lost on some level, we lost reverence for the world around us because like the most sacred became somewhere else versus the sacred being the river, the tree, Mm. the whisper of the wind, the brilliance of how this whole integral web of life works, that that's the mystery, that that's, and, you know, again, I'm not going to pretend to know, you know, what the indigenous view of life and but through reading and you know studying the little bit that I have, yeah, there's there's an a relationship mm. with the living world uh, appreciation as, as the great mm. spirit, the great the great the mystery, the great spirit, the universe, this living world that mm-hmm. that God, the mystery is is all around us, and mm-hmm. and we get to participate and have respect for that great mystery in how we behave, yeah, how 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 we behave that we don't take more than we need, that there's mm-hmm. a sense of an honorable harvest that we know we're going to just take a little bit because we know that we have generations to come that need to rely on a connection to this land. Thank you for that, Riot. And I want to just throw in a bit about kind of what I would consider human contextual reality that happens. One of the things in my studies that have been really eye-opening and, and kind of wonderful to see, uh, inspirational, but also disheartening at the same time, is that a lot of indigenous cultures, including Western European, which in their own context, yeah, there was were able to, cultures yeah, yeah, were able to have deeper connection and go through what I would call the teenage years of their cultural connection to land, uh, and and then until like monotheism kind of like restructured how paradigms of thinking work, that was a whole nother problem. But previous to that, a lot of cultures did have the mistakes happen. I mean, they went through like, oh, crap, we did that. 
or Bob and Doug over there did that and they totally wrecked it. Okay, let's make some stories that can be rooted in our culture of like, we can't do that. We have to respect this. We have to do this. And in that way, we're able to be much more sustainable in certain contexts. So I'm going to get back to that in a second. But what happens when we look at the colonizing perspective or what has happened in the past several hundred years with cultures coming into new places and saying, okay, here's what we want. Here's what we're going to take. Here's how we're going to do it. That's a completely different and and not connected perspective that is mostly based on extraction thinking to begin with. So you look at that, you're like, whoa, that's a big part. Now I want to talk about context in terms of environment. Most of the world's brittle environments, what I mean by that is where throughout the year, there's not uh, yearly moisture levels in the air that are adequate. So for about half the year, the moisture levels in the air are extremely low. Those are brittle environments. Most brittle environments around the world have adapted to become grassland or prairie systems because those systems evolved to be really well designed so that when it rains, there's a perfect super sponge for the grasses to utilize. So even if the grasses go brown, they're able to, in their sponge, if you know, if you pull up grasses, you always see that like really spongy stuff. They're designed so that when it does rain, they can take full advantage of that and make it so that their system can can jump back again. So if we look at the the arid or brittle environments around the world that have evolved into grasslands, and then we say, okay, contextually, those places are now the places where are mostly deserts around the world. Humans made those deserts. There are very few natural deserts anywhere in the world because nature wouldn't evolve a natural desert. So humans, over long periods of time, from overgrazing, starting to manage with tilling and other agricultural practices, in an arid environment, you have much less forgiveness from nature. So in a place that you have half the year is very, very, very low moisture, mm. when you till, when you leave bare soil, when you overgraze such that there's When you say overgraze, what does that mean? Grazing to the point where the grasses aren't replenishing or growing fast enough, and you're actually creating bare ground because of how goats Just and too sheep- Too much tromping. Too much time, literally pulling out the grasses. Okay, that's a longer explanation. But if you bring your eat your grass down too much, the roots get much more shallow because there's less photosynthesis happening, which means less root capacity. So your roots get so shallow that that next time they go back to they can literally rip it out of the ground. An animal's ripping out of the ground. Then that's bare ground. And then when the sun hits that and rain hits that, it erodes and 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 yeah, you can give grass a haircut and it grows back very nicely. But if you take the root, the grass out from the root, you're, you're going to be bald. You're going to be bald. Or if exactly. you get a buzz cut and then you have the animals come back when, you know, the roots, yeah, yeah. the roots match. Yeah. Most of the times the roots try to match what's happening above ground in, in a certain okay. way. So to get back to that, when we're doing agriculture in these brittle environments, what's happening is you don't have conditions like nice, gentle rains happening throughout the year to help the system regenerate really fast. So when we look at desertification happening from overgrazing, tilling, et cetera, in these brittle environments, even if a culture is respecting and paying homage and to the water god and this god, I mean, like, we respect everything and we're trying our best to respect it, it's damn hard to actually not have the system be degenerative if you're providing for pe- feeding people and you don't understand the principles of regenerative agriculture and you don't understand the science of it. So just to give some 
credit to some of these cultures who as 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 connected to the land as they may have been this is not an easy concept to be like okay we figured out that carbon is being pumped into the ground and we have to maximize photosynthesis you know let's let's just say like we didn't really grasp this science of it but in a condition like england for example where you have moisture throughout most of the year and it's a you know you get your sprinkles of mist they've had one of the most forgiving climates for agriculture so when they till the ground when they leave the ground bare regeneration is happening very quickly all throughout the year so then they say okay we're going to take over the globe we're going to go to australia we're going to go to these really fragile brittle environments the same practice that have been managed by native cultures to the best of their ability and we're going to say we know how to do farming with our arrogance. And then all of a sudden you're in Africa, you're in the United States on, on, on our more brittle environments. You're in Australia. In the course of a decade, you are completely annihilating a system because it is not as forgiving. So that context of brittle versus non-brittle environments, if people aren't thinking like that, and that's why I said it's not just what's happening, it's how it's happening and context, context, context. That's what regenerative agriculture is saying is it's not the what, it's the how. And they say context, context, context. If you don't know the history of your region, if you don't know what the native species are supposed to be there, et cetera, et cetera. You don't know how brittle it is. You're not going to mm. take regenerative agricultural. So there's, a, there's not a one size fits all with no, regenerative agriculture. No. It's so contextually based and it has to be. Otherwise, it's not a system. It's a holistic way of thinking. And you have, when you're holistically thinking, you have to take historical context into, into your set of understandings. Hey friends, I hope you're enjoying this episode. It's Simon here. Just a quick intermission to remind you that my book, The Proof is in the Plants, is now available. In this book, I cover common myths about plant-based diets, evidence showing the potential health benefits that are up for grabs, the positive impact eating plant foods has on the planet, and much more. To order your copy, head to plantproof.com forward slash book. plantproof.com forward slash book. Okay, let's get back into it. I want to understand more Kiss the Ground, the mission, and, and mm-hmm. what you guys are working on. But let's let's wind back a little bit before then and, and run me through how both of you came together and started Kiss the Ground and, and maybe what some of the you know pivotal parts of your lives independently were that led you into this area and the sort of burning passion that you have for it. Totally. <laughs> uh, so, we're passionate? What? So, yeah. So uh, grew up. In Ithaca, New York, we're, we're childhood friends. Uh, our parents were friends. Our parents were activists, uh, hippies, um, you know, wanting to make the world a better place. And I got to see my parents uh, build, a, build a business and really build principles of taking care of people, taking care of the planet as kind of the idea of what business, the opportunity that business is. And then that turned into an idea that happened back in 2004, which was the idea of Cafe Gratitude, which was this idea of how can we serve people uh, the best organic plant-based food and really knowing that the planet, the food, and ourselves are one and the same. And that was part of the sort of spiritual and philosophical view that I got had the privilege of being raised with. You know, I started working with them with Cafe Gratitude in the first year that they opened. That led me to New Zealand to give a, a, a talk at a healthy living conference in Auckland back in 2012. I saw a guy speak on a panel called Can Human Beings Sustain Themselves on Planet Earth? 
all the experts on the panel said, no, it's too late, we're, we're effed. And the last guy said, yeah, what they're saying is true. They're not exaggerating the bad news, but there's a blind spot in the equation. Mm. And we don't think, we only think as humans separate from nature, we don't think through what if we could think as part of this living system called nature, how, what would be some of the solutions? If we could, we could really understand the way we manage land and do agriculture could actually be the thing that could draw enough carbon down from the atmosphere, making a problem in the atmosphere, being a solution in the soil. And that moment was like, wow, that was the most compelling because it really was the moment where for me, the earth went from being a flat earth to a round earth. It was like, oh, flat earth is like we just destroy, 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 fall off the edge. And then round earth was like, oh, we can actually go back to the beginning. We can actually, we can cycle that imbalance that we created. We could actually cycle that imbalance and reverse it and actually transform it. And up until that point, there wasn't really a, a human context for how there was a pathway forward. It really, the best case scenario for humanity was like, do less harm. Go and, off the cliff a little bit slower. Yeah. So stay sustainable. Yeah. Uh, so that was kind of like a total game changer. So then I came back to LA after that trip. I, I, br- I told Graham to come to LA. Ryland's a very convincing person. He's like, Graham, you have to stop in LA. So, I'm going to set up so, an auditorium. We're going to have So who is this guy? This guy was. Uh... He's, he's actually an Aussie. Okay. Uh, Graham, Graham Say. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, and uh, he does a TED talk called How Humus Can Save the World. But he ended up coming here. I put a little <laughs> conference together of, you know, my most influential activist friends. And Finn, you know, kind of helped me set that up and basically gave a two-hour talk. It was four hours. Four-hour talk. <laughs> and essentially, we ended up at my house late that night with Graham and a small group, including Finian. And we basically hands in and said, this is the most compelling, inspiring, hopeful, real thing that we could give our lives to. And we're going to have this idea become the idea that transforms the world, that really gives a a new pathway, our new horizon of hope for humanity, because it feels like there isn't really one out there. We we did. We had we had the if this is all true. I had kind of like a side with Rylan. I'm like, yeah, we just learned. I, 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 I was I, like, I'm if, more gullible. He's he's a much more critical thinker than I, I'm. I was like, like oh, I'm all hold in. On. If this is true, we shook. We did the handshake of like, we're, we have to dedicate our lives to this because there's really nothing more profound in terms of potential for humans to to shift our trajectory. Period. There wasn't at the, up until that point. And for me, the moment I had when that four hour lecture happened, first off, I had some. Growing up in Ithaca, New York, with where Cornell University is, I had some historical references to the things that were being brought up. So the science that he was laying out, these words like mycorrhiza fungi, these things that are being thrown out, I was just jaw on the floor because I, I had had the chance to study soil samples with Cornell University in 12th grade of high school, where we actually were part of, I was just doing the soil samples, I wasn't actually doing the study, but this was the study that showed that oak groves, I think they were like five miles apart they were able to defend from airborne viruses. They were trying to figure this out for years. Finally, they figured out that the mycorrhizal fungi networks between the oak groves were able to send the message to, you have to get the antidote for this airborne virus that's coming your way, the internet of the soil. So my 12th grade year was studying that with all these fanatically excited graduate students from Cornell who had come into our class. And so I had, I'm listening to this four-hour lecture 
probably with who was in the room with like a, a little bit more of an understanding of the science of this. And it was just like, oh my God, this is connecting so many dots. And for me, it was like, I've been an activist. I was a touring musician as my life, but very much an activist and considered myself, you know, in whatever you want to call it, like the 95th percentile of people who knew what was happening with climate change, right? Of just like, I felt very confident in knowing mm. where we were and at. what was your previous sort of understanding of... of uh, the same as the first four people on the panel. <laughs> so was it's doomsday. Doomsday. And that was like, you know, we, I'm, I'm, you know, we're both that, pretty optimistic people, but the back of my mind and in my heart, it was, we are going off the cliff. There, it is inevitable. There isn't a way at this point, even if we halted all emissions today, I was still in that understanding of like, it's still too bad. We're, we're already this far gone. Mm. So to see this laid out in front of us and to have this opportunity as humans that we can actually reverse this, my moment was, if I didn't know this, I'm very confident that most people in the planet don't know this. And that was, you know, not to be arrogant about it, but that's, that's aside. It was just basically, that's what drove me to shake Ryland's hand and be like, we have to do this. I thought I was going to continue being a musician and touring and just like start a nonprofit that did it. Yeah. But obviously it took over my life. But that was the moment of like, if I didn't know, nobody knows. Therefore, I can't with right conscience. I know that the two of us and a combined combination of people can help to shift this conversation. So I had to do it, dedicate. Because mm -hmm. at that point we were saying, there's pioneering scientists and farmers who know about this, but the general public and thought leaders and business owners and government people, not enough people know this. Mm. Can we just contextualize yeah. this, I guess, in terms of, I mean, we were speaking off air before about carbon and, mm. and climate change. You hear that, you know, carbon is very much the key word that mm -hmm. is attached to climate change in the conversation today. Like, where does the regenerative agriculture sit as a solution amongst all of the sort of emitters, you know, through through our mm. um yeah, for our life, book. yeah, you know, electricity and power. Yeah, I, I think you know we, there's over 410, close to 415 parts per million. Over 415. No. Oh, over 415 parts per million of carbon in carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, which creates an unstable and a lot of you know yeah the weather events, the extreme weather events will continue to, and then not only that, the amount of carbon in the atmosphere is drifting and you know, because there's 70% of the planet is ocean, that carbon is basically drifting into the ocean and creating carbonic acid, which makes ocean acidification, which we've already lost one third, give or take, of the phytoplankton in our oceans yes. based on ocean acidification. Certain species of phytoplankton yeah. just to, to be, and, and also shellfish are losing their ability to create their shells. So essentially, you know, we say the rainforest is the lungs of the planet, but actually the oceans are the lungs of the planet because I think, what is it? Two Almost 50% of our oxygen comes from phyto phytoplankton in the ocean. Yeah. 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 So yeah. So, I mean, the, the scale of the scale of the problem is, you know, we, we have way too much carbon up there. Most of the conversation, most of the, the billions, even maybe into the trillions of dollars that are kind of aiming towards climate change solutions are just addressing the um, one half of the equation, which mm -hmm. is halting, you know, to, to decarbonize our energy sector. Mm -hmm. But, you know, what we saw is, wait, there's this whole offense plan. There's this whole 
opportunity of turning the clocks back through the way we manage land and through working with nature to sequester that carbon. And really also seeing, you know, in a, in a communication standpoint, carbon is not the enemy. It's not, it's not, a, it's not a, a bad thing. It's actually the building block of life. So recontextualizing a war on carbon. So we just got, we're just out of balance. What's that? Wait, yeah, wait, we, yeah, we're out of balance. Exactly. We, we've we've exactly. taken it from the fossil pool, which, you know, fossil fuels we've taken, you know, which is essentially plant matter that's, you know, dinosaur plant matter <laughs> from, you know, a long time ago. And we've basically burned that. We oxidized that. We put in the atmosphere and we've created an imbalance of carbon, which again, since the beginning of time, there's been times, whether it was an asteroid hit or volcanoes erupted, there's been times when there's lots more, more toxic, more extreme greenhouse gases in the atmosphere. And how did that solution come back to a life that, you know, a balance, to, a, yeah. to a balance, to an Eden of, yeah. to a, a, a beautiful planet? Plants. And plants. <laughs> what is the mechanism that's drawn that carbon down and created a balance? So it's not about reinventing some technology. It's about utilizing a technology that's 500 million years old and actually just- Naturally exists. Yeah, organize- a lot of R&D, we say, 500 yeah, million years. Or organizing the way we, because again, agriculture is the biggest- the largest way that we interact with the natural world is through agriculture. And if we could get that understanding that we could just shift that management practice to have, instead of a, uh, a net emission of carbon coming off that land, actually being a sequestration. And yes, we've known this for a long time in the environmental space of like planting trees, like trees, you know, they hold carbon in their yeah. you know trunks and, you know, there's some understanding of that they're going to sequester some carbon but not really getting that grasslands actually hold a much bigger opportunity than even forests because- Even oh, rainforests? What's that? Even rainforests? There lots of scenarios where grasslands are able to hold significantly more carbon than rainforests, but most of the time it's about equal. It depend, It really depends. Again, but context. It's just, let's, it's just, so let's come back to the, the sort of deforestation or where that plays into all this later. But but it, and correct me if I'm wrong, Finn, but my, my understanding there's, a, because of these brittle environments and because there's yeah. a lot of regions, a large majority of the regions around the world don't have enough rainfall to sustain a forest uh, canopy. Right and a forest, a forest ecosystem, but they do have mm. enough rain to sustain grasses. Healthy prairies, uh, yeah. Healthy prairies. So- This those, is like the more arid sort of exactly, conditions. Exactly. Yeah, so th those environments, we're not gonna be able to convert them to, to trees, but we could yeah. convert them to grasses and grazing animals and ha have a desert come back to a beautiful productive grassland mm. producing forage as well as food. So some of the, the things on that that I wanted to just address and we were talking about earlier before we started is this concept of, you know, Ryland mentioned the 4P1000 people can look up, you know, 0.4% increase of solar organic matter is is taking care of back in what, 2010, when where when we were at the COP21. Uh, that was the amount of emissions that if, if the world's ag soils were increasing. Uh, 2015, 2015. Yeah, 2015 or 14. Uh, if the world's soils were increasing so organic matter by 0.4%, we could, you know, eliminate all the emissions. So just remembering that. And then I want people... When you say eliminate all emissions? It, equating to the amount of emissions we're putting up each year. 
So if we were increasing from all industries, all industries, right? So that would take eliminate those. It wouldn't be a net gain at that point. It would just eliminate all all of the emissions. With that in perspective, I want everyone on this podcast to take a second, go to Google Earth, scroll around the globe, and check out everywhere that is in farming right now, and then do something even harder, which is finding places that were in farming. The easy way to do that is to look for fence lines or property lines that are now so degraded and look like desert that obviously no one's using them anymore. You can start to piece together how much land is currently being used, which in the United States, our agricultural lands, average soil loss, four tons of topsoil per acre per year. So just look at the United States if you're here or go to Australia, look at the land that's been in agriculture. And you're looking for, like based on color? Yeah, just you can just it. see that it's, yeah. it's ag. Just zoom in and you can see that it's ag. And then say, okay, average, that's how much soil carbon we're losing or how much soil, topsoil. That's four pickup trucks full of topsoil being lost from erosion every year per acre. Mm. So looking at that, you'll start to grasp the magnitude of the human imprint footprint on this planet in the degenerative sense. Then you start to say, imagine if one third or a half or all of this agricultural land was starting to regenerate. So it's cover crops, it's planned grazing that are bringing back biodiverse species. You start to just look at that land that's across the globe right now, and you start to imagine it being converted into regenerative sense. The impact can really move you as a person. You can say, wait a minute. Look at how much of the globe is being currently used for agriculture. As Ryland said, that's our biggest imprint right now on the world is how much of our ecosystems are being messed with for agriculture. And to answer your question with with forestry loss, why do we have to keep on taking out forest to grow uh, first to graze it and then to turn it into soy production? Because most of the land that we are growing cattle on to begin with is so degraded that we have to keep on going and getting new stuff. Like Alan Williams in Alabama, his neighbor, you know, has grass this tall. I'm showing people it's about an inch. His grass is, you know, two feet high. He has three and a half times more forage production in only three years than his neighbor does. He's able to hold three and a half times more cattle. So when we talk about our world as if it's just here. This is the sustainable thinking moving to regenerative thinking. Sustainable thinking says, here's where we are. This is the scenario. That's the equation. Regenerative is saying, well, every year we can increase biomass production. So if we're having enough forage for three and a half times more cows on the same piece of land, we've changed what's quote unquote needed to feed human populations growing to 10 billion people. Do you get what I'm saying? When we're thinking in the regenerative lens, we're thinking of increasing carrying capacity of all land. Carrying capacity for the animals on it, the food production on it, and therefore the people, amount of people who can be fed from a region. Increasing carrying capacity is the aim of regenerative agriculture. Does that make sense? Yeah, I guess my my question from that, and it's, again, it's something that we spoke about mm-hmm. before, is I'm still trying to wrap my head around the amount of supply, like you're talking about grazing animals. And I mean, we can come to that Mm -hmm. in in a little bit more detail, but the regenerative agriculture model, the supply, when I think about the feedlots, we we talked about this before, one thing that comes to mind is that they're very intensive. They they would produce a lot of meat very quickly um, to meet Mm -hmm. uh, uh, the demand of a world that consumes a lot of meat, right? Moving to a model where you're talking about not overgrazing but having animals on the land and 
come to the to the context of the slaughtering of the animals and things like that later because I think that'll be interesting for people to to talk about. But does that change the actual volume and the output of meat that is available? That's that's a great question. I don't think I have the the scientific answer for that. But what I can throw out there is because I, I could look that up and, and get that to you, no problem. And some of the arguments on both sides, um, from my understanding, is it's just basically a, a thing that's been posed that has allowed for the excuse of industrial uh, agriculture on the feedlot side. Yeah. But what what I wanted to throw out really quick is the rate of land loss, farmable land lost. We're losing thirty million acres to land that is so degraded that not even chemicals can farm it with it anymore. The size of England is 32 million acres. So every single year at our rate right now, we're losing an area almost the size of England of farmable land being lost out of production. So if throwing back the word sustainable, this rate of land loss, and that's why I encourage people to go to Google Map or Google Earth, you can see pretty quickly how much land is out of production now. Go to Australia. People be like, oh, Australia is a desert. People be like, oh, California is a desert. No, they're not. They were turned to desert. And you can read a great book called The Call of the Reed Warbler by Charles Macy. It's a great account of the history of Australia. But there's so many anecdotal stories in there of written accounts from the early settlers who came to the most lush paradise and within four or five years, because it's a brittle environment, turned it into a wasteland from grazing goats and these different things. They were just like, oh, let's graze them like we did in England. And they turned it into a desert. So what I'm getting at here is to say feedlots are more productive. If we look at the land where the feed is coming from and the fact that we're losing in the United States or in the whole world an area the size of England to lost land, so degraded it can't even be produced can't produce any food, we're on a completely unsustainable path for producing even the food that goes to the feedlots. So that's what we're talking about. We can't we can't just look at like, well, let's look at this one metric over here. We're dealing with a global phenomenon of arable land, farmable land being gone, so depleted that it's out of production. Yeah, I guess where I and I completely agree with that. Where I'm thinking about is Obviously, what you're saying is a more more a regenerative model, and it's going to to in the long run be creating a greater amount of calories. Yeah, and, and, and I think I think just to again, I'll just address it from my view. I, I think as a as a we're a gluttonous, you know, in the Western world, the United States, you know, we consume too much. Period. Do we consume too much meat? Yes. Do we need the big hunk on every plate to be meat? No, I, I don't think so. I, you know, I've been I've been vegetarian, vegan for most of my life and, you know, eat a very small bit of, you know, animal protein in my life at this point. You know, so I, I think we need to we need to be a more minimalist culture uh, as far as just our, you know, unnecessary consumption. And yes, is meat one of those things that I, I believe, again, this is just my personal that it is. Yeah, we should be eating less meat is, again, my personal opinion and and or but. We, we can't just say like, oh, just eating plants is going to save the world. And I, oh, no, no, I, no, I, I get that. I and mean, I, I've, I've, I, I did say that for a part of, you know, part yeah. of my life. Yeah. Um, but because, again, we actually the reason we started understanding soil systems is we started to grow vegetables. We started to become vegetable farmers in Northern California to grow vegetables for our 
organic raw food restaurants. And we started realizing, oh, wow, we need animals to be integral as part of this farming system to make these vegetables grow. So all that to say, from where I'm standing is, you know, my, my whole business enterprise is a vegan, you know, I, I run vegan restaurants, plant-based restaurants, which I, I'm... That must have been tough at some stages, right? Like there must have been... Um, they had so, protesters outside. Really? Oh, yeah. We, 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 yeah, we had, we had major... Hey, walk me through that. <laughs> That's a great story. Yeah, so we were raw food vegans uh, running restaurants in San Francisco, spiritual inclinations, environmental inclinations ethical inclinations led us to be, you know, vegetarians for, for our whole lives. And that made the most sense from what we knew. It just intuitively made the most sense. And so we were doing, you know, we, we were serving the best organic plant-based or vegan food, uh, and it was raw food. And then we started, you know, we bought a 21 acre farm called Be Love Farm. And we uh, started growing vegetables for our raw food, vegan restaurants. And, you know, as we started to farm and interview other farmers and figure out how to get these soils to produce and these crops to grow and make this land healthy, um, you know, we started bringing in lots of compost. Oh, compost. All right. Well, where, and stuff. where is this compost coming from? Oh, this is, um, this is coming from, oh, a, a feedlot situation. Oh, so now I'm taking, you know, poop from a system of, of death. <laughs> That is a total system that I it was like a holocaust to the animal kingdom, and I completely despise. But I'm I'm needing, I'm I'm depending on that to make my soils grow. Well, we don't want to do that. Plus, we don't really know what's coming in that in that manure onto our farm. We'd rather have you know a cow on our farm. You know, again, starting to study bio, study biodynamics, which you know Rudolf Steiner said. You know, if you want uh, your farm to mimic nature, you have to have animals. You have to have you know cows, grass eating animals. Because, you know, the way that grasslands became healthy in all the ecosystems around the planet were the combination of grasses and grass-eating animals basically roving and rotating over those grasslands, pooping and peeing, and, you know, and that, and, and trampling down that forage and that carbon, and then that becoming that beautiful sponge or carpet of, you know, carbon-rich soil, you know, exemplified really beautifully with, you know, the center of, you know, this country and the fact that there was 60 million um, bison, you know, roving and rotating over a huge, huge sector of the whole country, which ultimately made these, you know, up to, you know, in some places, 12 feet deep of black, rich, beautiful, uh, carbon-rich topsoil. And, you know, that soil was created with, from the partnership of animals and grasslands. And then, you know, became one of the most productive agricultural lands in the world because of that that bank account of soil carbon and life that it was generated from the animals and the grasses. Yeah. So if we wanted to just go back to looking at that 21 acre farm, how we were going to continue to get fertility to happen on that land, we were either going to need to continue to bring in inputs from output or, out, get some animals. or get some animals to help cycle nutrients that we couldn't get access to because we can't get access to, you know, those perennial grass um, nutrients, but cows can and then they can fertilize and put that, that nutrients back into the soil and ultimately grow, you know, vegetable crops or, you know, if you eat meat, you know, eating the, the cows or the animals that are, you know, helping, you know, cycle those nutrients on the farm. So I've got a couple of questions on that. Yeah. Um, and then I'll let you continue with that yeah. story and you can come to the protest. Yeah. Tell me how that went down. Um, but 
there, I mean, we hear people talking about green manure and veganic farming. Is that something that you've looked into? Is that a, a, a viable model in any parts of the world? Is it something that Kiss the Ground is like looking at learning more about? Where do you sit on that? Yeah. So I, I, I mean, I think, again, it's highly admirable. And, you know, again, I, I, I so respect the vegan or plant-based viewpoint and respect like, hey, I don't want to participate in death. And again, that's a that's a beautiful aspiration and a beautiful kind of way of life. And as an urbanite, someone living in the city that just doesn't want to participate in, you know, the death of animals, doesn't want to participate in CAFOs. And, um, you know, it's, it's the, I get that. that's a, It's a beautiful thing. Uh, it's, a, it's, a, it's a noble aspiration. The thing that we just learned was when we started to go, you know, grow the vegetables, we realized the vegetables weren't vegan because they were reliant on, you know, fish get, emulsion. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> most organic production of vegetable production is literally being fertilized on the backs of, you know, dead animals or the manure of animals that were part of a system that was, they were, they existed to begin with so that they could be turned into food. Can so, I, can I throw something in real sure. quick? There's, there's some kind of hardcore arguments and debates that happen on Facebook, as you can imagine, uh, with this world. But what's really interesting is what's kind of coming out of the mix is more and more people, quote unquote, pop or, or see the light. I don't know if that's the right word, but that's not fair. But um, is that there is, there's so much room for agreement. There's a middle ground. And, and the thing Ryan brought up, I'm really glad he said it, is this urbanite context, right? And so why sometimes this this separation can happen. You can have farmers completely dismissing someone who's in, in the in the urban environment and vice versa, right? You can have these two groups of people completely dismissing each other, and mostly because they don't understand the point of view and they don't understand the perspective. That being said, when we start to look at animal habitat and we start to look at the extinction crisis, we start to look at the biodiversity indexes falling like crazy right now. Why I was talking about something like Beyond Burger or these these examples, which are very logical and arguably very heart-centered, awesome potential shifts of like, well, we can't do animals because they're causing all this destruction to the planet, plus the methane emissions, blah, blah, blah. We have to have an alternative. But when you start to look at regenerative as our goal and what happens when an ecosystem is regenerated, bird population, I mean... I could rattle off if I went onto Facebook right now, how many animal sanctuaries have happened because a farmer went regenerative. They have eagle populations coming back. I mean, white oak pastures in, in Georgia, which just proved that their uh, CO2 equivalent of methane plus CO2 is negative 3.5, while Beyond Burger and, and CAFO raised cattle are all uh, CO2 but equivalent higher plus... They have eagle populations coming back. They have all of these wildlife populations. They become a wildlife sanctuary by the state. And this is happening all over the United States where people who are doing regenerative agriculture, they're bringing deer back. They bring all of these populations of wildlife from the ground up, literally, meaning the microbes, the, the healthy teaspoon of soil that holds more organisms than people on planet Earth is the source for these bigger organisms. So when we're tilling and we're doing soy production and we're doing these things that are very mechanical, we're destroying the habitat. So there is no cows or this animal. Animals and life are everywhere. If we're pro-life, 
that was no pun intended there. If we're pro-life, we have to look at the whole and we have to look at what, what we're creating in the context of each environment all over the globe. Sure. Because it's you can't just be like, well, I'm I'm not I'm not hurting animals and be like, well, yeah, yeah. yeah. Sorry, that farm is killing habitat for billions of organisms. Yeah, no, I mean I agree on the on the Beyond Burger. Any any product that's that's made made with, you know, monocrop ingredients is is definitely not regenerative and um, I mean, that's not really part of a sort of whole food plant-based diet anyway, mm-hmm. eating, eating that, those sort of products. Um, yeah. but the, on the, on the, the white oak pastures, I, I, I need to mention this because I know, I'd just like to know what you, you think on it. Like the, the company that did that report, they are like an independent agency that gets hired to do these sorts of reports. And they've also, so they've, they've done a whole lot of different reports exonerating various uh, industries and one of the previous ones they did was with Nestle where they said that they came to the conclusion that plastic bottles are not bad for the environment and that they should be they actually should be allowed in um in national parks so i mean for me the while the white oak pastures like the the carbon sequestration bit's interesting i'd like to see that verified by another party because I kind of, I get both sides. I see the beyond meat side, but then I see the white oak pasture side and I see the sort of very heavy pro meat enthusiasts jumping onto that and using that as like this massive argument to, to sort of claim that we should be eating very meat based diets. But I'm not (laughs) sure if that data is strong enough yet and has been sort of um, validated by you know agencies outside of an, an agency that they've paid to do it. Yeah, no, I know. I that's a total, totally fair critique valid point. and yeah. valid point. And I would just say that with what's coming on the data and the peer reviewed, you were we were mentioning earlier, uh, we have, there's a lot of amazing sets of research that have been now on their seventh or fifth or or so year that are coming to us that are just showing that this is something that is viable. And obviously, it was cast out as as garbage uh, 20, 15 years ago, but now as more people are understanding the rudimentary process, which we described to you, which is <coughs> how the heck the carbon gets down in the soil anyway. I mean, just to throw out the side of what scientists are sometimes doing is looking siloed. I remember a New York Times op-ed, which was like, well, it turns out soils with more organic matter are actually producing more CO2. And that becomes like a big article in the New York Times. And like I said, yeah. Nature figured that out. Duh. Yeah, if you just put a bunch of compost in soil and then just leave it out in the sun, you're going to lose it. It's going to turn CO2. Yeah, no brainer, because you're going to have a lot of activity of, of biology, and that creates CO2. You put some plants on top of it. But put some plants on top of it, and you have a system that's actually perpetually regenerative. So that's where sometimes this stuff can get so convoluted, because someone says, oh my gosh, this... And you're like, oh, God. Yeah, I mean, you, you can know? get reductionist and yeah. there's yeah. so many different opinions out there. It gets hard to work through all of this yeah. stuff. Yeah, I wanted to say a couple of things. One, um, Paul Hawkins' book that he was an editor on and co-producer yeah. with. Who's the woman that his, who co-wrote it with well, him? there's several co-writers, but... Um, I just want to... She's a, yeah. an amazing woman. I just want to give her credit, not just <laughs> yeah, give one it to second, Paul. Uh, he'll come up. But... Um, Basically, it was the book was called "100 Most Substantive Solutions to Reversing Global Warming," uh, and at the top twenty five solutions, eleven were land management mm-hmm. and regenerative ways of managing land in a regenerative way. And the whole even term "drawdown" is is a term 
designed around looking at photosynthesis pulling carbon out of the atmosphere. And, you know, the number three solution, uh, no, actually the number four solution is a plant-based diet. Because in the current models of impact, you know, eating a plant-rich, he doesn't actually go plant-based, he goes at a plant-rich diet. Yeah. Um, I think it, Rich interviewed him, actually. Yeah, listened he, to he, he listened yeah, to yeah, it, yeah, he yeah. interviewed him on the podcast, yeah, and then yeah, he did a live one yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah. So anyways, Paul's a, a friend and a, a mentor to kiss the ground and to our organization. But basically in that, in that uh, it's very, very peer-reviewed science and it's, it, it's actually even modest in its claims. They actually go kind of on the low-end solutions. But again, it's, it is validating this idea of the way we manage land. And, you know, part of that land management is the use and the partnership of animals. And in that partnership of animals, you know, there is a healing effect that's clearly happening that you can see on the land. Mm. And there's some, maybe some debate on, you know, what is the amount of carbon and how quickly that carbon is, yeah. is coming into the ground. But, you know, again, what we saw as a very, you know, tactile humans, you know, when we started having animals grazing our grasses and then being able to, you know, grow crops in land that we've been grazing on, you know, we had a very, very productive, you know, much more productive land when, you know, when we didn't have mm -hmm. the ability to have animals grazing and cycling, cycling nutrients yeah. back into the soil. And I mean, as you said earlier, I think you'd be, you'd be silly to think in this day and age, if you're not contributing to um, the animal agriculture industry, even if you are eating a plant-based diet, because with, you know, all of the, even if you're buying organic fruit and veg, all of that's, you know, coming with, I mean, being, produce with animal inputs right pretty much most yeah yeah and it's it's i think it's a it's a way of thinking honestly that's what that's what we're and as so many of the pioneers in this is just like at the end of the day it's how people are thinking Catherine wilkinson by the way Catherine wilkinson uh, one of the authors of drawdown but that book is is really phenomenal one thing before i jump over to this other segment in that book why it's so fundamental i think for everyone around the world is this change of thinking of what Ryland talked about with the 50% of the problem, which is just this emissions reduction perspective, which is in that book too. But when you put together the segments of that book that are talking about agriculture, whether it's agroforestry, whether it's regenerative, what they call regenerative, whether it's these other factors of agriculture, uh, uh, some of the other ones, I'm silvo, silvo silvo pasture, pasture, which is they, they separate trees, them out. Trees and grazing between the trees. But if you think of, they separate out these different parts but when you put the parts together, as I talked about earlier today of agriculture, that's causing regeneration. If you looked at that as the umbrella versus what they just call as regenerative agriculture, which is what some scientists had, had come up with as, as some of the explanation of that. If you're talking about agriculture that's causing regeneration, and then you put in the drawdown, you put the categories, silvopasture, agroforestry, all these categories together, that block of the solution to our climate crisis and actually creating drawdown the majority becomes, the solution becomes agricultural based. So that's where we start to see like, oh my gosh, here's a scenario that most of us weren't aware of an opportunity and now it's right in front of us. And now as a global society, we can do something about it because we're not going to stop needing food to eat ever. You know, we might stop needing fossil fuels to burn, but we're never going to stop needing food to eat. That means we're never going to be stopped producing food and that relationship with the land, being able to become a species, a keystone species that's causing regeneration versus 
what 10,000 years have shown us is we cause degeneration to happen. Societies all across the world being able to be regenerative is really what we're hoping for. Reconnecting with the ancient wisdom who were doing it and saying we can actually have this at a large scale. You ever, you ever seen the video called How Wolves Change Rivers? Your listeners got to watch this. It's a, it's a beautiful four-minute video that 40 million people have watched. And it basically shows how humans reintroduce wolves into Yellowstone National Park. And in seven years, they have an unprecedented proliferation of life, biodiversity return, animal species that haven't been there in 80 years coming back. So it's just this complete... And you'd think, well, wolves coming into the system, they started eating some of the deer and the foxes and the coyotes and some of the, you know, but basically that because there was no, there wasn't a predator in that system. An apex predator. Yeah. An apex predator that moving the species around the ecosystem, they got lazy and they started to just degrade and kind of consume just from one area. So their energy and their impact wasn't distributed. And so the system started to tank. Yeah. They came back, the wolves came back into the system and it created what's called a trophic cascade, which is basically one um, keystone species in the ecosystem is having a right relationship with the ecosystem and it creates this proliferation of expansion, abundance, and more life happening based on their their impact. And, you know, that really, you know, you, you see it clear as day in this, in this small kind of isolated model of Yellowstone National Park you know, that human beings could be the keystone species that really started putting these acupuncture points in nature through partnership with animals and species of trees and grasses and plants in certain parts of the world. And we, we could actually be, yeah. you know, regenerating. I mean, that, what that's, a, what, that's where the, sorry to cut. Did, yeah, <laughs> yeah, just, up, I mean, yeah, that the, the idea of, you know, the purpose of life could be to regenerate and heal our broken landscape such that we could have generations to come. I mean, it, it seems like a no-brainer of like the most obvious thing that we should be putting all of our focus on as a human species when we have reports of 12 years left until, you know, it's end of days or, you know, uh, it's irreversible till end of days, you know, based on the IPCC report. Um, so yeah, it's just, that's that's why, you know, this, this thinking, this consciousness mm. shift of, oh, wow, we actually can regenerate, we can heal. There is a circular nature that human beings could have in relationship to the earth. And, you know, that's really the, the kind of, you know, in, in, in many new age circles, kind of like, you know, what's going to be the, the, from the Piscean age, to the Aquarian age, like we're, we're all just going to like wake up and be like, love, like love each other. Yeah, I mean, maybe that would be nice. But as far as a, a practical awakening, this awakening of, oh, wait, we can regenerate and heal our broken landscapes in a way that can create abundance, food, fertility mm -hmm. for generations to come. And yes, we're talking about, you know, bridging the gap between, you know, the, the vegan dogma and the vegan, mm -hmm. you know, ideals of not, you know, no harm. And let's have a system that is healthier for animals. They have a better life. And for those that are going to continue to eat meat, we actually have their habits actually being a healing effect. Mm. And why can't we work together for that healing and for better lives for animals versus just hating mm. each other and kind of saying, you know, you're both 
wrong in your perspective. Yeah, yeah. I we're mean, gonna I, we're gonna I, I go off the that. cliff anyway and I be mean, like, well, they're fighting as we go off the cliff. So yeah, look, yeah. I, I mean, I, I see that. I guess uh, <laughs> this might be a bit of utopia, but the, and it's a question. I guess the listeners will, some listeners may be thinking is. Is it always necessary to slaughter the animal on the land that is grazing? And I'm perhaps I'm 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 thinking that the main reason for that is economic viability of this as an actual practice. It's kind of our a current scenario too. We don't have enough buffalo, and we have too many housing developments, and we have too many roads to accommodate for buffalo, for example, being the one species that is regenerating our land, wild buffalo, right? That would be the utopia version. I mean, you even look at uh, large swaths of, of Africa where their national parks are being encroached on and all these different things. And this is stuff that starts to dawn on you. Be like, you watch these National Geographic videos where they're, I'm not making fun of your accent, I'm just doing one of the guys who, who is on the National Geographic video <laughs> describing, place. We can, we describing can the environment anything. that these animals are in. And then you start to look at, as Ryland talked about, with wolves changing rivers and a natural ecosystem evolution coming back into place. Most of these herding animals in large areas have change their migration patterns based on certain things that humans have done encroaching on their environment water uh in the system we didn't talk about that enough but you know plants covering the land aggregating the soil creating the sponge makes it so water infiltrates uh aquifers come back springs come back when you're allowed to infiltrate the water versus allowing the water to run off when it's degraded long story short a lot of these places some good videos that are doing that on your, um, regenerative YouTube, yeah. right? Yeah, exactly. So, um, speaking of which, kiss the ground, blah blah blah, does a lot of stuff. Um, when <laughs> yeah, we're we, talking, we got, we got five minutes. Yeah, we got to, five. Yeah, we'll when we're talking about the <laughs> the the factors of all across the globe of like this is how it is. What we were asking and hoping for this in our in our experience with with shifting people's minds is it's not just this equation of like, oh, if I do this, this this will happen. There are latent seed banks that are just waiting for the conditions to come back. So when you get your your you do your adjustments, you can have grasses that haven't been present or flower species that haven't been present for 50, 100, 500 years. They come back because the conditions of the soil change. And all of a sudden, what we're dealing with isn't just humans have to redo everything. We can just put some pressure points, as Ryland pointed out, some of those acupuncture points. Activate it. Yeah. Activate it. All of a sudden, we're like, oh my God, how, I thought this was an extinct species of grass. Or I thought there was not. There are dormant microbes that are literally just being like, I can chill for 500 years until you bring the conditions back that make it right for me. And that's what we're looking at is conditions will allow for this to be not just like, add this, we have to go plant all of these species now that we're lost and go to the seed bank in Antarctica and grab all the seeds and plant them again. Like, no, they're waiting there. We have to help the conditions. And that's really the promise of of something bigger than than what we expected. Okay, kiss the ground. Kiss yeah. the ground. Um, <laughs> what we're are we, we're, 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 we're a, it. Does it even exist? We're, we're a, yeah, we're a, <laughs> we're a nonprofit started in my living room. And we have, over the last seven, almost seven years, have really been looking at how we can best shift the global conversation around climate and around uh, resilience and food security and, you know, taking care of our earth, having reverence for Mother Earth. How do we shift the conversation? And so through a lot of different ideating and different 
strategizing our best methods and levers to make you know shifts, we've come up with three programs. Um, we create media. Uh, we create beautiful, inspiring, compelling media that gives people hope and the understanding of how regeneration works and the people and the businesses and the science that really validates that. Our Sec- film is coming out this oh, year. We, yeah, we have a feature Instagram, length. We have a feature length film that is premiering at Tribeca Film Festival on April twenty second, the fiftieth anniversary of Earth Day in New York City. Yeah. Big deal. Um, we're wow. hoping it's going to be a, a game changer. And that's a that's Woody Harrelson, um, okay. who's also a wow. big plant based advocate. Um, you know, understood this concept and the value of how this, you know, again, this is a more, a, a larger conversation. There's a larger holistic conversation than just what we choose to eat. Um, but really, you know, the way that we can, you know, manage our land in a healthy sure. and restorative way. So he's the narrator. Of the he's film. the narrator of the film. So that film comes out in, well, to the, to the industry, to the, to the film festival, April 22nd. And then our second program is uh, Finian created and really pioneered it. And really it's uh, called uh, Soil Advocacy or Leadership. And it really is creating leaders all around the world who are lit up, informed and inspired and really have the confidence to be in the communities and the environments and the businesses and the political environments. Yeah, so from farmers who are wanting to be able to talk to their customers or their neighbors better about it to business businesses that are getting into this who are wanting to to talk about it to policymakers or people who are going to bring policy, write policy, lobby for policy. So if you're inspired by what you heard on the podcast, the next step would be to take our leadership program. It's a six-week course that would allow you to become, you know, Finian or Ryland passionate, um, you know, activists, environmentalists who actually are really pioneering the conversation of regeneration and taking that into action in New York local communities. And so we've trained over 2,000 people in 25 countries around the world through that program. And then the third program is our farmland program, which is a three-year transition program, educating farmers, uh, soil testing, giving uh, soil testing to farmers at year one and year three, and giving uh, kind of a handhold consultancy over a Mm three-year period. Uh, so that farmers can have the education and the support and the evidence of how to make a transition to regenerative ag. And so we provide scholarships um, to farmers to allow them to make that transition. So someone who is a farmer can get the scholarship and get in the program or someone who wants to fund farmers and get the reports back on their regeneration can actually be the source of a farmer getting a scholarship. Very cool. So yeah, what we saw is like, we want to, we want to, change the 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 public opinion through media and kind of just becoming the new zeitgeist of understanding regeneration through our media you know creating you know influencers and leaders through our leadership program where you have really people who are in communities making a difference and then how do we actually then change the supply so we're working on change you know allowing for farmers to transition so that as the awareness and the attitude shifts and the opportunity of this shifts we then are also building the infrastructure and people on the ground doing this practices so that we can start to have the food that people will be desiring once they understand this potential and possibility hey friends me again Quick note to let you know, I have a brand new, completely complimentary two-week plant-based meal plan on my website. Inside contains delicious breakfast, lunch, dinner, and snack recipes, along with a complete breakdown of the nutritional information for each. Whether you're looking to add one plant-based meal to your weekly regime or go full plant, I'm sure you'll find this resource helpful. You can get your copy today at plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. That's plantproof.com forward slash meal plan. 
Okay, let's get back into it. All of the the links will be in the show notes to everything that you just listed then. So if people want to go through that and read more. Yeah, become a member of Kiss the Ground, follow us on Instagram, share our content, and uh, take the leadership course, fund a farmer, uh, read our book, watch the movie. Uh, We also have made, you know, tons of really... uh, really the soil story, which is the first piece of media that we created some five years ago that really became, um, it's been translated into six different languages and it really is in three and a half minutes. You really get the whole yeah. conversation that we're talking about. So okay. thank cool. you everyone. Final, so, and fi- thank you. Final, uh, sort of, uh, question for you yeah. for, for the listeners. Yeah. If there, you, you spoke before about the best option currently is to buy biodynamic. Any, any other tips about just currently consuming, um, when you're going to the grocery yeah. store, what you should you be doing? Ask. Um, you could be that person. Start being a, uh, an advocate right now. You could be that person who says, "Hey, I'm going to stand by the egg dispenser place and be like, hey, by the way, cage free doesn't mean anything. Uh, why don't you try these pasture ones just for taste alone? If you go home and buy these two cartons, and I promise you that 100% pasture raised one is going to be much better tasting. And you're encouraging people to go off their own motivation to get them to start supporting something that is more regenerative and more uh, uh, not fair to the animals too, animal rights and everything like that. But you can start to do the research, be like, well, actually, you know, this company is doing regenerative beef. If you're going to buy beef, buy this. Or if you're at the farmer's market, start saying, what are your soil practices? Because you'll find, and this is just not scientific, but we've been doing little mini studies of just asking farmers at farmer's market what their soil health practices are. And lo and behold, the ones with the better soil practices have all the chefs coming to their get their food because it's better tasting. The nutrients in the food come from the biology in the soil. Yeah, so uh, we have a purchasing guide that's free on our website True. Yeah, that allows, true. that guides you on how to start purchasing food to support the growth of regenerative um, as a segment. Um, yeah. So, And was- this year we'll be building out with another company, we'll be building out uh, maps. So you'll be able to start finding all over the states and other parts of the world, finding where sources from either biodynamic or converting to regenerative. And regenerative organic certification is coming out uh, out of beta stage, I believe, next year. So that's at Patagonia and Dr. Bronner's and Rodale Red Institute. Wow. Uh, Institute. Yeah. That's so cool. The first standard. Yeah. All right, lads. All right. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for bringing this to your listeners. So, friends. There it is. I hope you enjoyed that. Thank you for, as always, listening through to the end. Certainly, I think that we can all agree, working with the soil and moving to regenerative systems that improve soil quality rather than depleting it is imperative to protecting the environment and producing better quality food in the short and long term. In saying that, I I really don't want to forget to, to lose sight of the forest for the trees. Moving to a regenerative system with holistic grazing is not in and of itself going to solve climate change from a food point of view. What will is a dramatic downshift in the amount of animal products on our plate, particularly red meat and dairy, which are the two worst food groups when it comes to environmental damage. But put simply, if one is pro-holistic grazing, holistic grazing enthusiasts or or pro the Alan Savory method, they need to understand that moving to that system means significantly less meat production globally compared to now due to to land demands and and as a result, huge decreases in per capita meat consumption. Uh, 
So whatever way we look at it, getting rid of factory farms means people need to reduce their meat consumption. So to put that another way, if we are eating a a paleo diet or a keto diet or whatever it is, a a plant-based diet, and and we are against factory farms, and, and, and that is common ground, and we all want to see improvements in planetary health, well, then we all need to be advocating for shifts to more plant-rich diets because moving away from these intensive systems of factory farming simply means there will be less meat available. And this is not just my opinion. This is emphasized in Paul Hawkins' 2017 drawdown report. It's a huge report. It's emphasized in the Eat Lancet report, and it's in hundreds of studies looking at the food system and environmental impact. They all come to the same conclusion, move to plant-centric, plant-focused or plant-exclusive diets. And as Hannah Ritchie from from Our World in Data has stated, who who I've cited many times on social media and and on my blog, even the, the most sustainable meat and dairy producers have a bigger carbon footprint than the worst plant protein manufacturers. So this is, this is a quote from Hannah. Even your tofu shipped to you across the world and wrapped in plastic will have a lower footprint than meat. Whether you buy it from the farmer next door or from far away, it is not the location that makes the carbon footprint of your dinner large, but the fact that it is beef. I've spoken to quite a, a few people in this space. And look, if there was a solution like holistic grazing that was this panacea and would turn around climate change and meant that we could we could reverse the warming and guarantee a, a better future, I would be all for it. I wouldn't let some ideology get in the way of that. That's not what this is about. And 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 in speaking to to many people in this space and and to reading so many studies that all come to the same conclusion, here's where I currently stand, what I currently make of it. Animal agriculture is an incredibly inefficient process. For every 100 calories fed to the average cow, we only get three calories out on the other side. At the same time, it uses up over 80% of agriculture land, yet is only providing us with 18% of the world's total calories. We quite literally cannot afford to be wasting this many calories, not when we have millions of people dying of starvation each year, and particularly when this is coming at the cost of significant environmental damage. Because the simple fact is, if we were to move away from intensive animal agriculture, the feedlots, the factory farms, which I'm all for, and we and we move towards a regenerative system that includes holistic grazing. There is simply not enough land to produce enough meat to meet the current market demands. You know, that's one thing that feedlots, factory farms are very good at, and that is creating a lot of meat really quickly. So if we're going to to move away from that, we need to to understand purely due to to land constraints that with this comes a dramatic reduction in the total meat available per person globally. And in addition to that, despite the carbon sequestration that certainly does take place, and that was spoken about in this episode with with holistic grazing, per the the Grazed and and Confused or FCRN report that Nicholas Carter, uh, environmental researcher from last week, and I spoke about, 
uh, and I'll put this report into the, this week's show notes. Holistic grazing is still a net emitting practice. And that, that is a result of the methane that is emitted by the animals being greater than the carbon that is sequestrated from the environment into the soil. And on top of that, as this grazing goes on, this soil becomes saturated in carbon and these net emissions only increase. Now, perhaps one day if innovation like cellular agriculture or clean meat, which I'm going to cover in upcoming episodes, is all of a sudden available globally, which I hope it is, then this necessity to to change the foods on our plate may not be as clear-cut as it is right now. But today, it is very clear. A shift towards a plant-based plate is the evidence-based way to reduce the environmental footprint of our diet. In fact, a study out of John Hopkins University, which again I've put into the show notes, found a vegan before 6pm diet where people ate vegan for the first two meals of the day and snacks and, and then had an omnivorous dinner, reduced the environmental footprint of their diet by 41%. Now, a vegan diet reduces it by 70%, but as I always say, perfection is often the enemy of good. So if you can start with two plant-based meals a day, that's great. And to be honest, uh, particularly in Australia and, and certainly other Western countries that I've visited anyway, breakfast is often plant-based, whether that's uh, oatmeal or avocado on toast, things like that. So that's an easy one to sort of get out of the way for most people. And and then you plan your lunch and do something like a, a delicious bean burrito with guacamole and a few plant-based snacks and you're there. And um, so many people that I speak to who incorporate that, they end up feeling so good that it's not too long before they change their dinner to to a plant-based dinner uh, as well. So if you are sort of thinking about dipping your toes into the sort of world of plant-based eating, then that may be a, a nice way for you to sort of get involved without feeling that you have to go all in. Anyway, friends, that's all for this one. If you enjoyed today's episode, as always, I would love you to leave a review on the Apple iTunes app. Uh, it really does help more people find the show or share your feedback on social media. And please do connect with Ryland and Finian on Instagram at Kiss the Ground. I know that both of them would love to hear from you. Coming up, I have a few more episodes on planetary health and cellular agriculture and also a really fascinating episode with fasting guru and scientist, Dr. Walter Wongo. I look forward to sharing those with you. I hope you have a good week and I'll catch you real soon. Bye for now, friends. Bye.